Lord Jesus, you said that after you left, that your spirit would come to us and would teach us all things and would lead us into a deeper understanding of you, that your spirit would come teach us and give us words to say. And and I, I pray tonight, Holy Spirit, for words to speak. I pray that you would give me utterance to the truth of the word of God and that you would keep things clear as we head into this into this season of our study through your word. I just pray for clarity, understanding, patience, and of course revelation. Lord, you know I am insufficient to these things. So we come asking you to be our rabbi. And lead us into all truth in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. By many convincing proofs. I love how Luke starts out with that sentence. Ever the investigative reporter, Luke makes it absolutely clear Jesus did not appear as some kind of ghostly apparition in the peripheral vision of a handful of wishful thinkers. He came clearly. He returned. He he presented himself. John would say he manifested himself in flesh and blood. Luke 24, 36. Jesus said to the apostles, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And so they saw the wounds. They physically touched him, touching his hands. They, they watched him wolf down a piece of fish, Luke tells us. Jesus did that purposefully to show them that a spirit does not have a fish dinner. They met him for breakfast on the beach. You may recall that study a couple of weeks back that the breakfast was already frying when they arrived. He serves them. Remarkable. They saw him in the mountains of the Galilee. They listened to Him. They ran into Him. They they learned from Him over a period of 40 days. And over in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said the following. 1 Corinthians 15.3 For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried... And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Most of whom remain until now. But some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James then to all the apostles. And last of all as to one untimely born he appeared to me also. By many convincing proofs. What's Luke up to? He is making his case. He's laying out the case here. But please understand, as we go into the book of Acts, it's all that Luke can do. All he can do is lay out his case. 
All he can do is present the evidence. That's all any witness for the defense can do. Just bring the evidence. But where faith is concerned, we need something more than evidence, don't we? Evidence is good. Evidence is helpful. It can shore up and encourage our faith. But evidence never sold a single person on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith does not come by evidence. My friends, faith is a work of God. Faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Faith is something the Spirit offers if we are open to it, if we desire it, if you really want to know who this Jesus is, if you really want to follow Him. He's going to give you the faith to do that. And then once that spark of faith enters, the evidence just starts to flood. You see things you never saw before. You believe things you never believed before. We need someone who can come in and close the deal. We need a closer. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. That's who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is the closer. If I was going to entitle this study tonight anything, I think I would just call it the closer. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.13, Having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The closer. Paul says in Romans 8.16, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. He seals the deal. And I know that I know that I know that I am a child of God. Why? Because the Spirit tells me so. And my spirit hears Him. And believes Him and is confident in Him because of what He has told me. He closes the deal. He does it in three ways. And this is important because as I told you on Sunday, going into the Acts, this is not the Acts of the Apostles. This is the Acts. These are the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Through the Apostles. Through the Church. That's the best title in my opinion for this book, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. So understand that three ways... And I understand that there are vastly more, but I'm going to give you three tonight. Ways that He closes the deal. Ways that He seals the deal. Number one, with God's presence. His Spirit testifying with my Spirit. God's presence. Now we saw Jesus seal the deal Himself with the disciples when He breathed on them, John 20.22, and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Presence. And that's where it begins, with the the presence of the Lord. And the presence of God is not guesswork. 2 Corinthians one twenty one, Paul says, Now he who establishes us with you is in Christ and anointed us is God who also sealed us and gave the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. The presence of the Spirit of God. That's where it all starts. That's what begins sealing the deal for us. And Sunday we talked about this as well. The real difference between Christianity and all other world religions. It's not what we believe that makes us different. It's what we become. It's not a creed. It's the Christ. It's Christ in us. It's the fact that we become, by the Spirit of God, an entirely new breed of people. He changes us. In ways that no religion can change a man, can change a woman. The Spirit of God does the altering, the transferring, the transformational work in our life, changing us. That's what makes a Christian different than anybody else. Because we've been born again. 
changed by the work of the Spirit of God. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. And so the first way he seals the deal is with God's presence in us. He indwells. Receive my Spirit, Jesus says. Second way he does it. With God's purposes. For once the Spirit is indwelling, now now He begins to teach. And now He begins to reveal what are the purposes of God in us. And we see this in the second verse of the opening of Acts. Note this. Luke writes, Until the day when He was taken up to heaven, after He had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom He had chosen. So now we're in phase two. He's given the Spirit the presence of God indwelling, and now by the Spirit, Jesus is instructing them. So they are receiving God's purposes. This was all before the day of Pentecost. Baptism of the Holy Spirit had not taken place yet. Had not occurred. It was all before chapter 2. He gave him His Spirit, and now He's teaching him them by His Spirit. And here is the difference, I believe, between being filled with the Spirit... And being baptized with the Spirit. If you're filled with the Spirit of God, you're going to receive God's presence. As I believe anybody who comes to faith in Jesus does. Receives the indwelling presence of the Lord. And if you're filled with that indwelling presence, He will give you His purposes. He will begin to reveal to you His Word, help you understand His Word, speak to you and give you insight into things that you wouldn't have understood before. That's what happens when you're filled. But there's a difference between that and being baptized with the Spirit because when you are baptized with the Spirit, you begin to know His power. You're filled with the Spirit, you have presence, and you have purpose. You're baptized with the Spirit, now you have power. And power comes after the filling, and that's the third way he seals the deal, with God's power. Verse 4. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water... But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Remember, this is a kingdom book. If you note back up there in verse 3, he was speaking of things, teaching them concerning the kingdom of God. So he was giving them kingdom information. And they ask now, well, okay, so is this the time the kingdom's going to happen? He says, no, no, no. God has fixed that, but it's just not for you to know. It's going to happen, just not then. Not now. The timing of the question was off, right? But he goes on. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. God's power. He enables the believer with God's power. And the Holy Spirit is the only source of divine spiritual power. I heard some young people talking the other day, just kidding around, and one of them said, hey, my spirit animal is such and such. What's your spirit animal? Really? 
And they were kidding around. They weren't even being serious. i got to remind you again what we talked about Sunday. You are either filled with the Spirit of the Lord or you have a demon. It's no other alternative. You don't have the spirit of a puppy. You know, my spirit animal is, you know, a gopher. No, no. You have the spirit of the Lord or you have a demon. It's really the only choice. And people who mess around with with other spirits, spirit guides, spirit animals, muses, geniuses, demons, are messing with demons. He wants to fill you with His power. The Holy Spirit of the living God is the only source of divine spiritual power. He's the only one from whom you can receive the power and it's the power we need to do what He has called us to do because without that power we can have the indwelling of His Spirit which brings great comfort. And we can have the instruction of His Spirit which gives great information. But to have revelation in our lives, to make a difference in this world, to speak the words of God, to have declaration, we got to have a power that we don't have. And it comes from the Lord. Now, Throughout the book of Acts, we're going to see this practical power in action. So if any of you are sitting here thinking, oh boy, Rick's starting to go off now. We're just going to follow this through. We really have no choice. We got set on this course 11 and a half years ago, and we have no choice. We've got to see it through. But as we see it through, we are coming into a season in the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit where we're going to see things, oh, we've talked about, we considered, but we haven't really dealt with face-to-face in practical working order. And you're going to see the Spirit of God working practically through Peter, through Paul, through other believers. We'll see the practicality of all this. You could call the book of Acts the training manual for the believer on how the Spirit works in the church, through the church, on the world stage. And by the way, as long as it's a training manual, it might be a good idea if we had a course outline. So let me give it to you. It's verse 8. Verse 8 is the outline for the book of Acts. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem. That's part 1. Chapters 1 through 7. Witnesses in Jerusalem. And in all Judea and Samaria. Well, that's part 2. Chapters 8 through 12. The gospel spreads on out into Judea and Samaria. And then part three of the course outline, and even to the remotest part of the earth, chapters 13 through 28. And so we can divide very easily the book of Acts into those three sections. One through seven is in Jerusalem, eight through twelve in Judea and Samaria, and thirteen through twenty-eight to the remotest part of the earth. Verse nine. And after he had said these things, Rick, Rick, wait, go back. Talk more about the Holy Spirit. Oh, we will. We will. Patience. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, and I would add mouths hanging open and everything, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. No doubt angels. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? Mouths hanging open and everything. 
This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way you have watched Him go into heaven. They're standing there. They are transfixed on the cloud. They can't see Jesus anymore. He's hidden from their sight now. But they can't take their eyes off the sky. Could you have? I mean, if in the middle of teaching tonight I just started to lift off? I mean, I would imagine 10, 15 minutes after I was gone, someone would walk in here and you would all be going... And so off Jesus goes. Up He goes. And in this two-volume set, Luke gives us more detail about the ascension of Jesus than any other writer. It's remarkable. It's exciting because you're going to ascend. Now the Bible tells us much much quicker than Jesus did. They were at least able to watch Him go and be received by a cloud out of their sight. We're just going to go. But we will ascend. Well, Luke tells us all of this. He said back in the Gospel of Luke, volume 1 of this two-volume set, chapter 24, verse 50, and Jesus led them out as far as Bethany. Note this. As far as Bethany, and He lifted up His hands and blessed them. And while He was blessing them, He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Well... Bethany is actually not on the summit of the Mount of Olives. It's on the eastern slope. It's down on the back side. A lot of people think, well, he, he went up to the top of the Mount of Olives and, oh, and up he went and everybody, oh, you know, the band played and the people were amazed. He didn't. The only ones who saw him go were the apostles and it actually makes good sense now because they went onto the far side of the mountain. Jesus was received up into a cloud from their sight from Bethany on the back side of the Mount of Olives. So all the people in Jerusalem were just going about their business. They had no idea what was taking place two miles away on the other side of the Mount of Olives on the east. But he did ascend from the Mount of Olives And just as the prophets foretold, the angel said, He will return to the Mount of Olives again. Ezekiel chapter 43 verse 1, Then He led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east, the eastern gate of the temple. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. Who is the glory of the God of Israel? It's Jesus Himself. The absolute personification of the glory of God. And he comes from the way of the east. And his voice, Ezekiel said, was like the sound of many waters. That's just how John described him in the Revelation. And the earth shone with his glory. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. So he's going to come to the Mount of Olives and on a cross. Zechariah the prophet tells us, chapter 14, verse 4, In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. Touchdown. Matthew twenty four twenty seven. Jesus alluded to this when He said, Just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. That means quickly, but I believe it's also locational. He's going to come from the east. Just as Ezekiel said, just as Zechariah said, just as the angels are now indicating, you don't need to stand here, He's going to come back. Just as He went. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 also says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds. Well, that's how He went, right? A cloud received Him and He was hidden from their sight. Well, He's coming with the clouds. 
and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him, so it is to be. Amen. Now, my opinion, Jesus was received up toward heaven in either uh, nimbus or cumulus, some kind of cloud. When He comes back, I think the cloud He comes back with is a great cloud of witnesses. It's us. It's the church coming with Him. Where do you get that, Rick? Revelation 19, study it on your own. Look for these things. Look for these things to be fulfilled literally. He will literally return just as He literally ascended. Luke 24.52 tells us right after these things, they, uh, after worshiping Him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Now, back in Jerusalem, picking up on the story in verse 12 of Acts chapter 1. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. Don't let Sabbath day journey confuse you. That's just a couple of miles. It's as far as you were allowed to travel based on uh, you know, Jewish law or the extension of Jewish law. Couldn't travel more than two, two miles. So that was a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. Note this, Judas the son of James is Thaddeus. Okay, that's the same apostle. He's either called Judas the son of James or Thaddeus. I think at this point in the story, I would be going by Thaddeus, but that's just me. These along all had one mind. They were all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. Their devotion to prayer already reveals the presence of the Spirit with them. You see, Spirit-filled people tend to be prayerful people. And that, among all the marks of a believer, should be a huge one, that, that we're prayerful people. Because if the Spirit is in you, you want to be in communication and in communion with the Spirit. But a couple of things to note here. Number one, Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is the last mention of her in the Bible. There's no acts of the mother of Jesus. There's no book of Mary. There's no follow-up. There are no letters written from her. No accountings of her. After this, she was there. Prior to Pentecost, we know she was there. She was with the apostles. That's it. That's all we hear. Anything beyond that, you would have to go to the traditions and doctrines and dogma of man. We get this much of Mary and no more. What I'm saying is she just quietly and humbly slips into the larger fellowship of the church. No less and no more important than anybody else. The last we hear of her. Second thing to note is the upper room. It says they went to the upper room where they were staying. And this upper room may have, I'm just going to introduce the thought and we'll come back to it, may have actually been a chamber in the temple itself. It's a good possibility. And I'll explain why in a bit. Verse 15. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, and let me just ask, anybody surprised that Peter stood up? Anyone shocked that he had something to say? 
He stood up and he said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now, verse 18, this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. Gross. But cool. I mean, you know, it's... Wow. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language that field was called Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. Anyone know where the field of blood is in Jerusalem today? Any guesses? Anyone? It's the Hinnom Valley. The Valley of Gehenna. That's where Judas spilled his guts, so to speak. That's where that took place. The field of blood, the Hinnom Valley. That picture that Jesus used for hell. Interesting. For it was written, now Peter continues, in the book of Psalms, and he quotes Psalm 69.25, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it. And, he quotes Psalm 109.18, let another man take his office. Therefore, Peter continues, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us, uh, accompanied us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Now stop right there. Did Jesus tell Peter, we need to make sure there's a twelfth apostle, so take care of that, Pete, while I'm gone? I don't know. We don't have any record of him saying anything like that. So I don't know. I kind of don't think so, but I could be wrong. So verse 23, they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them. And the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Was Matthias the twelfth man? Was he the twelfth apostle? Or... Would it be Paul? And that question has been asked and re-asked and considered for 2,000 years. Was it Paul the Apostle? Or was it Matthias the Apostle? To make matters more interesting, in the New Jerusalem, John tells us, Revelation 21.14, the wall of the city will have 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So one of these guys gets his name written on a stone, and the other does not. Is it going to be Peter, Andrew, James, John, blah, 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 Paul? Or Matthias? Who's it going to be? John could have cleared it all up for us if he would have just named stones. You know? But he didn't. And Scripture never goes any further than this. Now, for years and years, I have made the assumption that Paul is the twelfth man. That he's the legit 
apostle, and I have good reason for that, and I still lean that way, that it will be Paul's name that actually graces one of the stones in New Jerusalem. Why? Because Jesus hand-selected the original twelve, including Judas. When Judas dropped out of the game, Jesus hand-selected Paul. Now, Matthias, you could say by extension, through prayer and the casting of lots, was selected. So perhaps Jesus... And he was there. He was there in Jesus' ministry from John the Baptist all the way through the crucifixion, saw him resurrected. So he, he truly would be a good witness. And I don't want to downplay Matthias as a believer. The fact that the guy's name is written in Scripture at all is pretty phenomenal. Doesn't say Rick. That would have been great. <laughs> So Matthias, great follower, witness of, of Jesus. But Paul was chosen by Jesus in person. Matthias was chosen by the Old Testament system. The system in place from the old law. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 8 and 9 talk about in Yom Kippur how the high priest was to choose the scapegoat. And they would cast lots. And if the, the one on which the lot fell, that would be the scapegoat. He would lay his hands on the scapegoat and all the curses of Israel would go on the scapegoat and it would be driven out of the city. And the other goat then would be sacrificed unto the Lord. Now if I was a goat, I probably would have chosen scapegoat. But, you know, whatever. That's how it was done. That was the Old Testament system. Cast lots. And we see the casting of lots in different ways, even down through the Hebrew Scriptures and among the Jewish people. Until now, this is the last time in Scripture anyone will cast lots. The choosing of Matthias. Well, what do they do after this? After this, they go directly to the Holy Spirit to seek the whole counsel of God. And by the way... They really weren't seeking the whole counsel of God. They gave God two choices. Just two. You ever do that? Okay, Lord, here's the deal. Should I do this or should I do that? What if the Lord wants to do the other? You've only given Him two choices. And I am guilty of that. I've done that all the time. When we were adopting our kids... Cheryl and I began talking about this process, and, and we went through the process, and at first, on our paperwork, we put down one boy, one, between the ages of 8 and 11. Those were our parameters. Here you go, Lord, and we'll take any anyone you want. One boy, no girls, between the ages of 8 and 11. That's our parameter. Well, things got a little dicey. Some things happened I won't go into right now. And Cheryl came back to me and said, I was praying, and the Lord told me that our parameters are too tight. And I went, oh, fantastic. <laughs> well, what does that mean? She said, I think we just need to open it up. What does open it up mean? And she said, I think we just need to take... And you had to put an actual number of kids on, on the uh, form. I think we should put down three... Ages birth to 16. Are you kidding me? It's amazing how God works. He just kind of, you know. And that's what we did. And so we ended up bringing home a one-year-old, a four-year-old, and an 11-year-old. Two of them are girls. (laughs) 
And we have been so richly blessed. What if we had held to our parameters? Either this or this, God. Either one boy between ages 8 and 11 or nothing at all. Those are your choices. Which one will it be? Or, Lord, what's your will? In this case, two guys. Two options. Every time, listen, every time you give God an either-or situation, you're casting lots. I mean, let's, let's call it what it is. That's what you're doing. You're drawing straws. you got a 50-50 chance of it going the way you want it to go. <laughs> and that's what they were doing here. You want to know a better way? Pray in the fellowship of other believers, asking the Holy Spirit for clear direction. Listen to the voice of God. Seek confirmation from His Word, from other believers. And you will hear what God wants, as opposed to the few options we tend to want to give. One more thing, after verse 26, Matthias himself is never mentioned again. We don't read of anything he does in the book of Acts. There's not a letter from him, there's not a mention of him by Paul or any of the other writers. The whole rest of the New Testament, no more Matthias. All we know and kind of know is church tradition. Church tradition says that he was stoned to death in Jerusalem. And then after stoned to death, beheaded. I guess they wanted to be sure. So he died a martyr's death, if that be the case. And again, I, Matthias was a servant of the Lord. And should be honored as such, but I don't know. I'm not sure I can buy that it was Matthias. But I can't completely discount Matthias either. I can't just write him off. Why? A couple of reasons. Number one, because of what I would call apostolic adherence to Scripture. i got to give Peter props for quoting Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 in support of replacing Judas. Peter goes to the Word. The apostles trusted in the Word of God. And down back in verse 20... Where it says, let it be written in the book, it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Peter goes straight to the word. Peter and all the apostles, and please understand this, because right now, in the current state of things in the church, this is absolutely critical. Peter and the other apostles believed two things regarding the word of God. They believed it was inerrant, and they believed that it was inspired. They believed in the inerrancy of Scripture and in the inspiration of Scripture. Absolutely before and above all other possible sources of information. That God's Word is infallible, is inerrant. That God's Word is inspired, spoke, not not inspired as in a good idea, but breathed by the mouth of God, the words of God, through those who wrote it down. The apostles accepted that as absolute truth, taught that as absolute truth. Do you? And I challenge every single one of you here tonight to answer the question, do you accept Scripture first as the highest written authority before all the critics and the skeptics and the scoffers? Do you accept the Word of God? I want to take you straight to Genesis chapter 1. Don't go there. But the debate rages in the church. And and if you have a different opinion than me on this, I can still love you. You're still my brother. You're still my sister as long as Christ is Lord. But the debate rages on about 
how long it took for God to create the world. The Bible says seven days. The Bible describes it as seven 24-hour days. There was evening, there was morning, one day. That's the way a Jewish person would describe a 24-hour period. I mean, it is so specific. Yeah, but evolutionary theory, you know, and, and science. Science. Listen, good science has always supported Scripture. Bad science, not so much. But Christians who, 100 years ago, wouldn't even have questioned how long it took God to create the world, these days we'll go, well, yeah, but you got to make room for there to be billions and billions and billions of years. Well, thank you, Carl Sagan. I don't agree. Okay, but Rick, they couldn't have understood it. So God just used language to help them understand that it was, you know, seven days, seven periods of time, and within that, you know, it could have been billions of years, but early man didn't have the capacity do you really think that we have more brain capacity than, than people 6,000 years ago? Are we really that arrogant to think that we have it all figured out and they were just, they were morons with puppy spirits? <laughs> really? Besides the fact, the Bible tells us God is not a man that he should lie, is he? As a matter of fact, God cannot lie. Therefore, If he says it was seven evenings and mornings, seven days, do you believe in the inerrancy and the inspiration of the Word of God or not? Rick, why are you pressing the issue here? Because a large portion of the church no longer believes in the inspiration of the Word of God. A large portion of the church does not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. How do you know that? Because of the moral decisions that a large portion of the church is making today. The Bible has been closed and it has been set aside. You know, there was a time in history where the Bible was chained to the pulpit. That is, the common man was not allowed to read Scripture, study Scripture, know the Word of God on his own. All the common person could do was go listen to the priest or or look at the stained glass windows to learn the stories. And the priest would determine what was valid, what was important, what the people needed to know until the Reformation. When the Bible finally got unchained. And I wonder if if those great leaders of the Reformation could see the church today, what would they say? We unchained the Bible and you set it aside for pop religion? Do we believe in the inerrancy and the inspiration of Scripture, or do we not? Peter and the apostles believed it. They believed if God said it, He meant it. They absolutely believed, as Paul later wrote, all Scripture is inspired by God. God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And by the way, if that makes me a fundamentalist, so be it. We need to get back to some fundamentals where Scripture is concerned. Well, they were in prayer. And back to Matthias now. They were in prayer. They were already indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And Peter is quoting Scripture. Wow, that's pretty heavy. 
So when they come to the choice of Matthias, it's based on prayer, it's based on the Word of God, it's based on the fact that the Spirit is dwelling within them. So, so Rick, are you saying that Matthias was the right choice? I didn't say that! I'm just saying that there is compelling reason to accept that yes, perhaps Matthias was added to the apostles. But, sometimes, we can have all of this going on. We can be in prayer. We can have the indwelling of the Spirit of God. We can quote Scripture and still miss the will of God. Really? Oh yeah. Which, brothers and sisters, is why we need the power of God. Why we need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Why we need to function by His inspiration as well as by His indwelling. We're going to get into this and we're going to get into this big time over the next several weeks. But as for the apostleship of Matthias and Paul, here's the thing. Both could be apostles. That's an option as well. You know, we're going either or. Is it Matthias? Is it Paul? Cast the lot. It could be both. Matthias could have been the man interim because Paul doesn't even become apostle until later on. Matthias could be an interim apostle. I don't know. He could be an apostle at the same time that Paul is an apostle. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 12.28 says God has appointed in the church first apostles and second prophets and third teachers and then miracles and then gifts of healings and helps and administrations, various kinds of tongues. And the word apostle in the Greek simply, apostolos, simply means someone who's sent. Matthias was just someone who was sent. Paul was someone sent. In Acts chapter 14, verse 14, by the way, Barnabas is called an apostle. So now he's in the mix. Matthias, Paul, Barnabas, who are the apostles? Well, Barnabas was called one. And you can look that up. Again, Acts 14, 14. Now, as to whose name is going to appear as the twelfth man on the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem, write this down, it doesn't matter. There's only one name that matters. One name of one apostle that matters. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He's the apostle whose name I need to know. He's the one I follow. Not Paul. I will learn from Paul. We will learn from Paul. As spoke by the Holy Spirit. Not Peter. We'll learn from Peter. Again, as spoke by and moved by the Holy Spirit. But the apostle who matters is Jesus Christ. 